Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, banks, brokers and bonds are all in the news again, so should we be worried? Business journalists have probably spoken more about health results than pure financial ones over the past year, but life for them seemed to go a little bit back to normal over the last month or so. Every week there's been a different big ticket item in relation to one of our financial institutions, and very little of it has been good news for Irish consumers. Ulster Bank quit the country, Bank of Ireland closed a lot of its branches, and then over the last week, Davy has been embroiled in a controversy that doesn't seem to be running out of road. The central bank's fine for double dealing back in 2014 and the mangled response by the senior heads in the brokerage led to extensive coverage and eventually rolling heads. What happened within all of these individual stories? What's the financial landscape like right now in Ireland? And should we all be a little bit worried we're hearing too much about these bonds, banks and brokers again? To either alleviate or heighten my anxieties, I'm still unsure of which way this conversation is going to go, I'm joined by our business reporter, Ian Kern, who's going to explain and analyse the separate tales. Thanks so much, Ian, for joining us. I know you've been incredibly busy over the last few weeks, which is saying something in a newsroom in the middle of a pandemic. So just let's go back to kind of the, the, the start of it all. Why are we hearing so much about banks right now? The simple answer uh, is just that the banks release their annual results as they do kind of around this time every year. This year, obviously, the 2020 results were always going to be of particular interest because people wanted to see what the impact of the pandemic was going to be. And, you know, the losses were eye-catching, you know, AIB lost something like 740 million, Bank of Ireland lost 742 million, I think, and Permanent TSB announced a loss of about 166 million. So, you know, they, they are sort of eye-catching losses. And I think on top of that, then, obviously, you know, you had these blockbuster announcements by Bank of Ireland and also by Ulster Bank. I mean, that's the kind of simple answer. Yes, there's nothing sinister about hearing all the results in a sequence. That's usually what happens. But is there anything that uh, we've heard about in recent weeks that signals one main problem for the banks or is it just all the pandemic? These losses were expected and, and the reason they were expected is because you know in the middle of last year I, I named just three banks there AOB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB but most banks around the world last year at some point would have announced what are called loan impairment charges and, and basically a loan impairment charge means that you write down the value of your loan book in anticipation of kind of a wave of loan defaults or problem loans as a result of COVID right so all the banks Irish banks took a loan impairment charge last year and the hope is that by booking it kind of in 2020 that you kind of take your medicine now and that you know in 2021 when the economy improves when things start to reopen that you'll be able to get back to profitability kind of as quick as possible but as I say these loan charges were well flagged AIB announced a loan impairment charge of like 1.46 billion Bank of Ireland it was 1 billion around that and I think permanent TSB was 155 million and it's those loan impairment charges that are driving the losses although there was a kind of loss of business and you know but but some banks would have experienced actually an uptick in new lending in the second half of the year so really what's driving those losses is those those loan impairment charges but i think if there is one thing that kind of unites all the stories is that the pandemic and, and the kind of as i said blockbuster announcements by uh, bank of ireland and ulster bank they're sort of shining a light on attention that we're kind of very familiar with in ireland that's at the heart of the banking sector and banking in general not just in ireland but but in general. And that tension is between the drive for, for profit and the drive to maximize value for shareholders versus the need for a, a banking sector that kind of delivers for consumers and, and one that's also stable. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what unites the different uh, stories. 
Yeah, and I think I mentioned that in an introduction to this podcast that it does feel like there's things happening for business reasons, but they all seem to be kind of feeling like a pylon on the ordinary bank customer. And no more so than in the case of Ulster Bank, where the entire bank is pulling out of Ireland. Can you give us the the basics behind that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to ask the question, why is Ulster Bank pulling out of Ireland? You know, the, the simple answer is kind of what I mentioned. It's to cut costs and to maximize value for its shareholders in the UK. For a more detailed answer, I think you kind of have to go back to the crash. Um, Ulster Bank, like all Irish banks, and indeed most banks around the world, uh, you know, took a kind of a savage beating during the crash. Um, It was bailed out uh, to the tune of about £16 billion by NatWest, which was then known as RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland. RBS was itself, by the way, bailed out by the British taxpayer. I think it was £42 was the final bill there. And what followed there for Ulster Bank was kind of a decade of job cuts and cost reduction exercises, uh, also loan sales. And they were all aimed at returning the bank to profitability as soon as possible, which it did in, in, in 2014. But in 2015, then, as part of this broader restructuring, what RBS did was it hived off Ulster Bank's operations in the Republic uh, into a new company that was kind of completely separate from its Northern Ireland business, right? I think since then, it's been very difficult to avoid the conclusion that Ulster Bank might not exactly be a priority for NatWest. And I think you combine that with the fact that Ulster Bank, this new unit, comprising its kind of southern business or whatever massively underperformed as well relative to the other parts of the company i think that probably focused minds and you know a strategic review was announced last september and the results of which were that natwest decided to wind down ulster bank operations in the south and that was announced uh, a couple of weeks ago there along with the results and what does it mean for staff and customers well, it means effectively that, you know, for staff in the first case, there's, there's 2,800 uh, staff in the south affected by the decision and 600 staff in the north, although the northern business is otherwise unaffected. Basically, what is hoped is that AIB and permanent TSB, by buying uh, a portion of Ulster Bank's loan books, they'll also take some of the staff from the relevant sections within Ulster Bank and employ them, you know, in in AIB and in permanent TSB. That's the hope. But I mean, all we have is a kind of a memorandum of understanding in relation to the sale of those loans that that hasn't been finalised quite just yet. But but the hope is that jobs can be saved through that. I think for consumers, obviously, the issue is that, you know, we already have a very shrunken down banking sector in Ireland. We've seen a lot of banks leave Ireland since the last crash. And I think the last thing that consumers need, you know, anybody who has, um, you know, applied for a mortgage or looked around uh, will notice that there is a lack of competition. And that is one of the reasons why the cost of lending in Ireland is so high. So I think that's the kind of immediate impact is that, you know, the loss of of the third largest player within the Irish mortgage market, which is dominated by AIB and Bank of Ireland, which have something like 56% of the market t- taken together. Um, I, I think that's bad news for consumers. Yeah, is there any potential solution to that? Because really, Ulster Bank was, like you said, the third player. There are smaller ones, but now we're kind of just left with two main pillar banks in AIB and Bank of Ireland. Is there a solution to that? What can we do? Well, you know, I think like all along, there's been an argument for years now made about sort of trying to create a third force in Irish banking. And as I said, we're talking about like a situation where the mortgage market in particular is dominated by two banks, which have a majority, you know, market share of mortgages. Right. And and all along, advocates for this kind of third force would have suggested that an idea 
to, to fix that would have been to merge Premier and GSB and Ulster Bank, two of the smaller players. That's kind of happening by proxy almost in the sense that, you know, Premier TSB is looking to take over a portion of um, Ulster Bank's SME lending uh, portfolio, I believe, and a portion of its mortgage book. But that's not quite the third force because also, you know, you have a situation where AIB is taking another portion of its of its loan book. So are there solutions? I mean, it doesn't look like there are any solutions as the market is currently constituted in Ireland. Um, you know, one solution would be to try and attract, you know, f- foreign banks to come in uh, to the Irish market. But, but that's been quite difficult, obviously, over the last few years. So is that the long term impact of this that we're going to continue to see high cost of borrowing compared to, you know, if you look at even the UK cost of borrowing, we pay a lot more here. Is that here to stay now? Uh, well, I think, uh, as I mentioned, you know, as the market is currently constituted, it certainly seems that that's the way it's going to be. But I mean, who knows? Um, the question is whether foreign banks can be tempted into the Irish market that might kind of help drive down borrowing costs in the sense that like there would be greater competition and stuff like that. But it's kind of too early to say, I suppose. But certainly it seems that way. And moving on to the the next story, which was the Bank of Ireland closures. And actually, my hometown of Selbridge in Kildare is a good microcosm of how this impacts people, because in that town, in the village, there's three physical banks, uh, branches. One of them is Ulster Bank, so that's going to go, obviously. And Bank of Ireland is closing its branch there. So it goes from a, a, a big town with three bank branches down to one. I know the answer to this is probably going to be cost, but I'm going to ask anyway, what was the idea behind these Bank uh, branch closures by Bank of Ireland. Yeah, I mean, you've got it in a nutshell. It's 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 cost again. Look, I, I think the context for this is that Bank of Ireland's results were actually, I suppose, relatively positive given the context, right? Um, they actually advised shareholders in the annual report that you know they'd be able to pay out a dividend kind of this time next year if things keep going as well as they have been. And one of the reasons for that is that Bank of Ireland has been very proactive in terms of cost cutting since the start of the pandemic. Um, they were first out of the trap with a plan to cut 1,400 jobs uh, last year um, through a, a voluntary redundancy scheme. So I, I think this decision to close down 103 branches has to be seen in that context. Is this cost cutting indicative of a problem or is it just indicative of trying to increase profits? That, that is the question, I suppose. It depends how you look at it. I mean, I think what, what you have to understand here, and this is the case for Ulster Bank as well, One of the reasons why banks and the main reason really that banks say that they can't make profits or they find it hard to make profits in Ireland uh, is because of onerous uh, EU capital requirements. And basically what these are, are the the amount of money that banks are required to hold on to uh, before they can lend. Right. So for every euro that they lend, they have to hold on to a certain amount of capital. And in Ireland, it's certainly the case that the capital requirements are higher than the EU average. Right. So I believe that Irish banks hold about three times more capital than their kind of European peers. But the reason for that is because the risk models that are used to calculate how much capital that banks have to to hold are backward looking, right? So, and currently they take into account the period of the crash when Irish banks became like some of, if not the most loss-making and overstretched institutions in Europe. So essentially what these... uh, risk-weighted assets, as they're called, do is take into account the, effect, the, the fact that Irish banks have a recent history of 
overstretching themselves, of reckless lending. And, and banks may say, of course, you know, look, we, we've changed, things have changed since then. We've instituted reforms um, that'll never happen again. And, and they may well be right, but for better or for worse, that, that is what the EU requirements require of them effectively. And, you know, it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off between stability and, uh, and profits. And so I think, you know, they're always looking for ways to cut costs, to cut the cost of doing business and also to diversify the revenue stream. So I think it has to be seen in that context. And from a consumer point of view then, because obviously consumers don't like to see their bank branches closed, is there less fear around a reaction from consumers within banks? Yeah, well, Bank of Ireland, I mean, almost immediately was able to point to a survey of its customers, which said that there is a greater, you know, demand for online services than there is for physical in-person banking. And, you know, I, I, I haven't studied that particular survey, but, but, but let's take them at their word. I mean, that's true. But it's, it's hard to imagine that that's the case for kind of older customers and certainly customers in rural areas. And that's something that we heard, obviously, in the reaction to Bank of Ireland's decision was a, a lot of upset and a lot of, you know, the, the, the sentiment that rural Ireland was again being left behind and that older customers were being sort of passed over or ignored, and I think I think it's hard to 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 divorce it from that. I think it's it's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. You know, people in, in towns that may have suffered a a guard station closure, they may have suffered a a post office closure or whatever. Uh, you know, in the past ten years, I think this is another bitter pill to swallow. You know. Yeah, and is it representative of a larger problem with banks that? You know, we don't see the servicing of, of consumers everywhere where they are. Or is it that we that we have just shifted and there will be people left behind who aren't yet ready to just be digital bankers? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. It is absolutely representative of, of, of this problem. And I think like, look, what I think is really interesting is, um, you know, the Financial Services Union, which represents, you know, a huge proportion of, of bank workers in Ireland, they talk about change management, right? And, and, and since the crash, what they've done is they've agreed change management uh, uh, strategies with most of the banks. And basically, this is a, a mechanism by which change can be done in a way that brings all the stakeholders to the table. And the idea is, it assumes that change is happening, right? And it assumes that the crash changed things and it assumes that technology is changing and it tries to sort of, you know, bring everybody to the table and kind of, uh, and approach it from a kind of a holistic way. And I think that's, you know, that's equally true with customers as it is with workers. I mean, I think the way banking is done is changing, but the question is, what is the cost of that? And, and there's, there's always going to be a cost, I think. And again, it probably goes back to that question of who is banking for or who are banks for? Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, that goes back right, you know, right back to the tension that we were talking about between this, you know, drive for profits, but also the need to have banks that actually serve communities and banks that are actually, you know, stable. Yeah. And this is where we might see places like the post office and credit unions uh, come in a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, Bank of Ireland, you know, par- part of the, their way of selling this to customers has been to say, well, look, we are going to transfer over certain banking uh, services to local on post branches. So so that has, I think, to some extent softened the blow, but it's still, you know, it, it's still a major announcement and it's still hard to get away from the sensation that, uh, you know, th- this is a decision that didn't have the best interests of its older customers and certainly its rural customers at heart. 
that's the bank side of the episode dealt with. So let's move on to the bonds and brokers side of things. It's not something that we think of as impacting our day-to-day life um, for most people in this country. But we do remember a lot of talk about bonds and about government bonds from austerity times and the crash. And so when the central bank ruled against a Davy transaction last week, it did kind of prompt our memories and cause a lot of controversy over the last week. The brokerage was fined 4.1 million euro. But can you take us back to the start of all of this? Explain what exactly the problematic transaction was and what happened with it. So essentially, the the transaction that took place took place in 2014. Um, the central bank didn't mention this in their press release, but um, and, and nobody, in fact, was named, not not the client or, or the 16 AV employees who were involved. Uh, central bank didn't name any of them. But, but what we were able to figure out is that the client in question was a guy called Patrick Carney. He was a developer, uh, one of the Maple 10 developers, actually. Uh, he, he had purchased Anglo-Irish bank bonds in 2009. They were valued at about 27 million. Bank bonds, by the way, are just a, an IOU from the bank. They're basically a way for the bank to raise money. Uh, they're a debt instrument. So in other words, you, you buy a bond, you lend the bank money in the process, and, and the bond uh, generates interest over time. And they can also be sold. Uh, and so they can appreciate in value, which actually these bonds did, right? So in 2014, he approaches Davy uh, because he wants to sell the bonds in order to settle a debt owed to a vulture fund. So basically what happened was in 2016, just flashing forward for a second, Carney said on affidavit uh, in relation in a high court case that basically he engaged with a debt restructuring specialist called Lebrun Private to advise him on how to deal with his obligations. Uh, Carney said he entered into a deal with Lebrun uh, and Davy, where Davy would sell the bonds for a price that would discharge the debt to the vulture fund and that any profit then would be divided between him, Lebrun and Davy. So the bonds then were sold to a consortium for uh, realising, I think, a total price of about 5.6 million. So obviously uh, th- th- there was money to go around then. But basically a row ensued over the balance, which led to Lebrun suing Kearney and Kearney suing Davy in the high court. Both actions were settled out of court in 2016, but the whole thing prompted a central bank investigation into the transaction. And what the central bank investigation found was that the consortium of investors who bought the bonds from Davy was actually comprised of a group of 16 Davy employees, including a group of senior executives at the brokerage. And effectively, what they had done was circumvented the brokerage's internal compliance structures to to get this deal across the line. And of course, Kearney was not aware that the 16 Davy employees comprised the the consortium that bought the bonds. So uh, essentially, the central bank found that uh, Davy had breached EU market rules Uh, specifically around conflict of interest uh, and also because it had kind of circumvented its own systems in order to get the deal across the line. Yeah, Leo Vrecker actually had one of the my favourite and succinct analogies for it. He kind of said, it's like you were selling your house and the auctioneer says to you he's trying to get the best price, but then actually it's him who's buying it. So I think that kind of, he puts it in layperson's terms being like, oh yeah, no, that doesn't seem right. That's not okay. So what was the punishment in the end? If we all know that this isn't okay, it, the compliance wasn't followed um, and the central bank has said, you know, this this was wrong. What was the punishment for it? 
the punishment initially was a, a 5.9 million euro fine and that's what the central bank determined would be appropriate but this was actually reduced by 30 percent to around 4.1 million that was kind of as the central bank said and i quote in accordance with the settlement discount scheme provided for in the central bank's administrative sanctions procedure essentially what that means is Davy uh, reached an early settlement with the regulator rather than dragging it out into a, into sort of like a full contested hearing and for that effectively they were they were given uh, you know a, a discount on the 5.9 million euro fine. So the government has to be brought into this for a number of reasons uh, one of which is that a lot of government agencies use Davy as part of their day-to-day work one of those agencies is the NTMA can you explain what work that they do with Davy and what decision they've made in the aftermath of all of this in relation to that work well I explained what bank bonds their government bonds are you know effectively for all intents and purposes the exact same thing they're a debt instrument they're a way for governments to raise debt uh, to fund spending and obviously they've become very important and, and, and everyone's become very interested in them in the last 12 months because we've had seen this huge uptick in government borrowing and spending as a result of the pandemic. I think business journalists like to say that, you know, you can tell how screwed the economy is by how uh, how much the ordinary Joe cares or knows about bank bonds and debt chimneys and things like that. And, uh, you know, that, that they've certainly been in the news and the NTMA has, you know, conducted numerous bond sales over the past 12 months, uh, as it normally does. I mean, these are normal things. It's just that they've increased in size and frequency since the pandemic because our our borrowing and, and spending needs have, have increased, you know. So, you know, Davy are one of the primary dealers of Irish bonds. Effectively, when, when Irish bonds are sold, uh, Davy are one of the companies that acts as kind of a clearinghouse for them after the auction or d- during the auction. And, and it's a kind of a lucrative business. I think, you know, a single bond auction which took place this week would have netted Davy something like 4.5 million, right? But because this scandal obviously has been out there for the past week and because there was a bond sale this Thursday, um, the NTMA had a decision to make, which was... Would it allow Davy to take part in this bond sale, given the huge reputational damage that it's taken over the last week? Forgot to mention, of course, that its chief executive resigned over the weekend. It's been reported, obviously, that he was one of the executives who was involved in the deal. Other people have resigned as well, senior executives. So the NTMA had a decision to make to begin the week, which was, do we allow Davy to continue acting as a primary dealer? And yesterday we got an answer. They they said no. So uh, Davy will not take part in the bond sale this week. Uh, and as a result, Davy has shut down its bond desk altogether uh, and it says that nobody who was involved in the transaction uh, the 2014 transaction um, is still employed by the firm as it stands so it, it moved quickly as this story has since last Wednesday. Yeah I wanted to get back to that initial reaction from Davey because you've mentioned one of the resignations there but Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue did look for a strong statement from them, which they hadn't initially given. So what has that reaction looked like from the outset to where we are now? Yeah, I mean, initially, uh, myself and other journalists would have obviously gone to Davy looking for, for, for comment. Uh, and, and, and essentially what we found out was that, you know, D- Davy believed itself to be tied by the terms of the settlement agreement, that it couldn't actually comment on the record. Uh, instead, myself and other journalists um, saw an email uh, that had been sent by Brian McCairn and the former chief, now former chief executive of Davy, to staff on the day that the fine was announced, basically trying to alleviate concerns and and, and apologise for the damage that was done. And 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 in it, he 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 said, or whoever wrote it said that 
there are actually no findings of conflict of interest by the central bank. Now, this simply wasn't true. So it ended up having to release a second statement to staff and then eventually bowing to political pressure, it also released a statement to the public. So, you know, in, initially there was a kind of a foot dragging. There was an unwillingness to go on the record. Uh, and, and all of this was, you know, obviously not a great look, especially considering the fact that the central bank had said that uh, Davy initially didn't really uh, cooperate with its uh, investigation in the first place. Of course, eventually it did. It also agreed to the settlement terms uh, uh, and um, and the 4.1 million euro fine. But all of this was obviously quite a, a bad look for the firm and, and, and an especially bad look for a firm in its particular sector, right? I mean, financial services don't have the best reputation. I think we all have a sort of sense of PTSD about uh, you know what what financial services uh, se uh, sector firms and banks get up to in Ireland as a result of our own experiences over the last kind of 12 13 years so uh, you know it didn't take a lot for people to criticize Davy at the time uh, and, and I think ultimately they bowed to pressure uh, released the statement and also you saw the resignations over the weekend is there anything more on this is there any more investigations is there any more to come in in terms of uh, punishments or outstanding actions to be taken Taken. Well, we don't know. I mean, in, in the sense that we, we, we had two central bank officials appear before the Oireachtas Finance Committee. We had Dervil Rowland, who is the uh, uh, Director General of Financial Conduct at the central bank. And effectively what she said was over the course of its investigation, they, they found no, no cause to make a criminal report. Right. So that effectively means they didn't find anything that would constitute in their mind a crime that would have to be notified to Gardaí or, by the way, to the you know ODCE, the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement which is the white collar crime agency here in Ireland but she said that now the investigation is complete uh, other agencies might get involved they might find things themselves that they want to investigate so the, the the possibility is open that there may be further investigations and of course we have John McGuinness the Fianna Fáil TD head of the Oireachtas Finance Committee cha sorry chairman of the Oireachtas Finance Committee rather uh, coming out and saying that he, he would like a full public inquiry into Davy. Um, we don't know where it's going to end. I, I think I said last week at the time, you know, this really felt like and still to some extent feels like a bottomless scandal. Uh, we don't really know where it's going to end. Um, we also have rumours or not rumours, but reports that, um, you know, in, in two publications, the currency in the Irish Times, that Bank of Ireland is actually circling Davy um, and sort of, you know, has made a kind of an exploratory approach to buy up the firm if it should need a buyer. Uh, so, so that's the kind of, you know, the, the floor on this, you know, it, it is that that could happen. Um, but, you know, there may also be investigations by state agencies. It'll be interesting to to watch that uh, Bank of Ireland Davy story and see if it actually would become a reality. And it also obviously brings us to another banking story from from this month is that AIB is buying stockbrokers good bodies. Uh, can you give us a sense of whether this is significant and if it affects the public in any way or customers of AIB or good bodies in any way? Um, well, I it's hard to say how it affects customers that aren't really involved in investing, but 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 I think what it is is it's a way of something I mentioned earlier about banks wanting to shore up their revenue streams. I think this makes sense for them. And um, Goodbody is actually a company that they sold uh, to Fexco, the Kerry-based financial services firm. I think in twenty ten, I want to say, and now they're buying it back. So um, it, it's a natural fit, and it's a way for them to kind of diversify their offering within the market. And 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 that's important, obviously, in the context of what's going on with the pandemic, in the context of 
you know, we could be facing into sort of economic, uh, you know, certainly uncertainty to use the horribly hackneyed word. But yeah, I mean, we are facing into a period where, I mean, who knows what uh, challenges banks might face, you know, as the economy reopens, uh, if that slows down or whatever. So I think the good body purchase is a way of effectively just diversifying their offering and, and their revenue streams in the process. So kind of just to circle back uh, into to where we started with, we've we've talked about all of these stories being back in the news, you know, people knowing a lot more about bonds now. It kind of feels like back in the day where we kind of all knew about those bond auctions. Should we be worried about the banks in the same way as we were back then? Or should we be worried in a different way? Or is everything actually just fine? Well, uh, to use that, that phrase that should send shivers down spines you know irish banks are extremely well capitalized or in theory anyway and you know that is at the end of the day the uh you know the effect of those capital requirements that i was talking about earlier on the effect is that they should have lots of capital lots of liquid assets on hand uh, and that they shouldn't be overstretched uh and 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 if there is some sort of a crisis so so those are all the shoulds and all the evidence points to that being the case right That, that 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 there isn't uh, you know anything to, to worry about along the lines of what we had to worry about in 2008 um should we be worried about the banks i mean it, yeah we should always be worried about the banks in the sense that you know they're such an important part of the economy and as i you know as we've mentioned all along the theme of this almost has been that tension that tension between uh you know the, the kind of social good of banks that actually function for the economy uh, versus the model that we have which is kind of you know profit based and that kind of thing so so I, I think there are always concerns when it comes to to, to, to Irish banks there, there's nothing particularly concerning out of the latest set of results apart from obviously the effect of COVID but hopefully as the economy reopens hopefully as things start to kind of return to an even keel hopefully in the second half of this year and into next year uh, you know th- th- those losses will pair back uh, and 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 we won't have anything to worry about. And we'll be keeping an eye, obviously, separately then on the repercussions of of the Davy story. Thanks so much, Ian, for coming in and talking and explaining all of that to us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Ian for all of his work on this episode. If you want to hear more from Ian, you can find him writing the always excellent morning memo email every weekday. You can sign up to it on the journal's homepage. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen and share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.